Let's talk Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Now, when I first heard Coppola was going to be doing Dracula, I was quite excited. Uh, when you hear the name Francis Ford Coppola, you, of course, immediately think of The Godfather, The Godfather 2, uh, The Conversation. You are thinking cinema, grand Hollywood production. And when I heard he was going to be bringing all of that weight to something like Dracula, uh, which I'm a huge fan of the story, like a lot of horror fans are, you are immediately like, oh my gosh, this is going to be great. Because I think up until that point, at least for me, uh, John Badham's 1979 version is pretty much the gold standard as far as a big Hollywood adaptation. You know, that one starred Franklin Jella in the title role. Um, he had played it on stage, so he was well suited for it. It has amazing sets, grand set design, a top notch cast, including Donald Pleasance and Laurence Olivier. Um, it's very much old school, big time Hollywood filmmaking. So for me, it was definitely the gold standards in, standard in regards to a contemporary adaptation of the novel. The original, with Bela Lugosi, is set apart entirely on its own as a universal classic. It'll never be touched. It has its own, um, has its own personality. It's very much a, an amazing product of its time and space. It, it, so it is just set aside on its own. So um, it'll never be touched. So I don't even consider it part of the conversation as far as good adaptations in a contemporary era. So I was definitely looking forward to Coppola's version as a worthy challenger to the 1979 film by John Badham. What we got is uh, so unique that it is both magnificent and so flawed you can't help but love it on its own terms entirely. The performances are kind of wanting. I mean, I know we all love Keanu Reeves. I think he's definitely matured um, as an actor over the years. It's just gotten better and better and better. But here, his performance is just, it's, it, it's, not, it's not good. I think they should have made a clear decision as far as whether they were going to go for um, an English accent or not because it like comes and goes, and, it's, and when he does do it, it doesn't really come off very well. Um, but Winona Ryder isn't very good either, and she was already well-suited to play this, play this role. And it's hard to interpret what they were going for here performance-wise. It kind of feels like a stage play with a certain amount of over overacting to be able to project to the balcony seats. Um, and there isn't a, a lot of nuance to the performances. You know, um, you know, films typically, you know, in their medium shots and their close-ups, there are nuances to a performance. There's a lot of, you know, physicality. There is none of that seems to be here. It seems to all be very much like a stage style acting where you're just, you know, you're you're over dramatic. And it's hard to tell what movie Anthony Hopkins is in. I can't tell if he's either doing a camp version or or if he's trying to do Shakespeare. It's it's weird. It's it's a little all over all over the map. Because Gary Oldman is 100% doing a Shakespearean performance in this thing. I mean, he's the best part of the movie as he should be. He's the title character. But if it's not for him, this thing I think falls apart. Um, the other saving grace are of course the visuals. And this is something in this film that we had not seen from Coppola since Apocalypse Now. When you watch Apocalypse Now, it definitely feels like it has some, shall we say, influences of substances which at the time may have been illegal, if you know what I mean. And I'm clearly not talking about wine. But it's been a long time since we had seen that kind of filmmaker from Coppola. So it was shocking to see it 
see it here. And while some of it comes off as a little pretentious here or there and a little too artsy-fartsy, most of it absolutely works. And the reason I say this is because I did the same exact thing with the material back around 1987 or so. So I have a history and an emotional connection with Dracula, which is why I am always interested in the material beyond the standard horror film appreciation. When I was in high school, I had a very close relationship with my drama teacher. His name was Rick Ferris. And Rick was incredibly supportive of all my creative endeavors, which in addition to writing included special makeup effects. This was a rough period in my life because my parents had split, um, so my dad wasn't around, and it was a time when I could have gone either way, and Rick sort of stepped in um, as a father figure type who definitely helped keep me on the right course. Because in that town that I grew up in, you could go either way. And a lot of people went the wrong way. And Rick, you know, developed a relationship with me and kept me on the true course and really taught me to embrace who I was. So during my time there, we never really did anything horror when I was part of the drama troupe. But after I graduated that very next fall, um, he decided to do Dracula. And he called me up and asked if I wanted to come back and help with the production. Because uh, he knew they were going to need some effects and he had a bunch of ideas and he wasn't sure how to pull them off. So the first thing we did is that we watched all of the films that I had in my video library, which of course was the original, the 79 version, um, some other vampire films. I think I showed him Martin also. And then we also um, watched some other films. And because Nightmare on Elm Street was a huge influence at the time, you could see it, you know, popping, popping up in all kinds of films and even television. And as we read the script, we decided to rewrite it a bit and add some dream sequences and some rubber reality moments in a, you know, in a, in a shout out to Nightmare on Elm Street. And like one of them was uh, one of the uh, cast had an old recliner that they were getting ready to take to the dumpster. And he said, no, maybe we can use it. And so we wrote a scene where when Jonathan Harker is in Dracula's castle, we took the recliner and we gutted certain parts of it and we made it to where a student could climb up inside the recliner and then we separated the threads that caused the arms you know to stick to the rest to adhere to the rest of the recliner and then what that student would do is that he would pull out the stuffing and he would he would stick his arms his arms inside the arms of the recliner and then just before the lights cut out the arms suddenly pop up and wrap around Jonathan Harker and bam the lights would go off got a great reaction from the audience we also amped up the role of Dracula's brides, and we wove them into some dream sequences. I mean, we really went a little, little crazy with a lot of that, just a lot of the lighting and some dancing, and um, their, them crawling around on the stage around Jonathan Harker, and really wove them into those rubber reality sequences. And that would be when um, a girl by the name of Athena and I would become really good friends. Now, we knew of each other when I was going to school there, and we kind of hung out in the same circles. So uh, the drama troupe was called the Harlequins. That's what Rick had labeled us. Um, so a lot of the creative types, the Harlequins, would hang out. Um, she, I, she existed in two worlds. I think she was a cheerleader. Or she was part of the dance team, but she was also in the acting troupe. And so we crossed paths a lot, but we never really hung out. But during this production, we did because we added so many effects gags and added so many scenes. These were long, long rehearsals. And we added so much blood to this production, it was unreal. So I'll tell you how big this play got. We invited a local reporter to our live rehearsal night. So for people who haven't worked in stage, a live rehearsal is where you do a production with no audience. 
Okay, it's you do it the exact same way you would do if there was an audience there, but there isn't. So if somebody screws up a line, you're not stopping and redoing the scene. If an effect gag goes wrong, you're not stopping. The actor has to figure out how to deal with it because if it happens during you know a, a performance when there's an audience, they're going to have to do the same thing. So it is a straight up real life performance that you have to figure out and, and nail. In the finale, when Van Helsing and the vampire slaughter crew invade Dracula's castle to kill him, we built coffins with holes in the bottom and rigged blood bags inside those holes. So that way, when Van Helsing drives a stake through a vampire bride's heart, that stake will plunge through the bottom of the coffin to where you can actually see it just go through the bottom. And with a shit ton of blood. <laughs> so the blood, uh, we rigged the blood to where it would s just gush out the bottom and splash back and splash up into the face and body of the actor playing Van Helsing. Athena delivered an amazing, amazing scream. Such an amazing scream, the reporter literally jumped out of his seat thinking there had been some kind of an accident. Because there was so much blood and her scream was so legitimate it looked like something had gone horribly wrong. Everything about that you know, live performance test run went off without a hitch. So when all was said and done, this dude was shocked. And needless to say, the write-up was glowing. It was probably the biggest write-up of any high school play in that town's history. Save for Death of a Salesman. But Death of a Salesman got written up for all the wrong reasons. Because they had two hells and a damn in the dialogue. Yeah, it was that kind of town. So this was October, by the way. So um, we were going to be doing performances throughout the entire month. I think the last uh, the last two weeks of, of October, you know, for Halloween season. And we sold that every single show. And in every single show, the audience would gasp in that finale. And we got a standing ovation every single night. In fact, demand for tickets was so high, every place that we had tickets for sale sold out. And they were saying, do you have any more? And we're like... We're at capacity, so we had to add an extra show. So we added a second show on Halloween night. On Halloween night, for that extra show, everyone is tired, right? I mean, this was an arduous production, but everybody loved it. Everybody was in good spirits. Everyone's tired. Rick comes up to me, and he says, how much blood do we have left? And I said, oh, we got plenty. He's like, let's do it up. Let's go for it. And Athena hears that, and she comes up to me. She's like, oh, my God, let's make it really, really bloody. Like, okay, and I did. And I was doing the effects with a guy named Zach. Um, I, I believe that was his name. And we've lost touch, you know, decades ago. But he And he was really good. This is a really talented guy, and I, I really hope that he stuck with doing some of his creative endeavors because he was really, really good. So we went overboard for that final show. And in those final scenes, Athena let out a scream you could have heard from two counties away. And the blood just was everywhere. It was just gushing. And it kept draining and draining and draining. After her character is staked, the blood just keeps dripping and draining from the floor of that coffin onto the floor. It was a thing of absolute beauty. Now, cut to 1992 when I see James V. Hart and Coppola do nearly everything we did. And as a writer and creator, it was such a validation of the creative decisions and the direction we went. In fact, when uh, Rick, my drama teacher, came to the theater to see the film, because I was running the theater uh, when it opened, he came out and he found me and he said, just remember, we did it first. And then he walked out. Some years later, uh, Athena and I would find one another on Facebook, like so many people do, and we talked about the film. 
And she pretty much had the same feeling. She said, oh my God, it was almost like watching our own play. Now, you may think, oh my God, this sounds like a football player rehashing his glory days on the high school football team. And you'd probably be right to a certain extent. But at the same time, a lot of those guys cling to those days because their lives never got any better than that moment. That was the pinnacle for them. For me, it was the beginning of everything that's come after. It's the memory of how supportive my drama teacher was of my creative endeavors in a small conservative town where such things were just really not considered a high priority. Getting a job at the lumber mill should be your number one goal in most people's opinions, or at the postal service. So to get that kind of support in that environment was crucial to my development as a creative. Unfortunately, these memories, um, which always come to me when I watch this film, uh, come with a certain amount of sadness. Because on October 27, 2015, somewhere around 3 in the morning, a man Athena had been dating off and on broke into her house and killed her. And then the coward went off and killed himself, rather than face the consequences of his actions. And then about a week later, while we Harlequins were still reeling from her passing, we got news that our drama teacher had also passed away. They didn't know when. Um, He was found in his home, and it was clear he had been gone for several days. So when we talk about nostalgia and the personal connections we have with films, Coppola's Dracula is the film which immediately comes to mind for me, for obvious reasons. It was a landmark moment for me at a crucial time in my life, and the two people associated with it who had a hand in it were gone. Just like that. And I'm struggling to find a way to end this particular episode on a happy note. And maybe this is the one time to acknowledge that sometimes there are no happy endings. But it does illustrate that the personal connections to films or books or music are real. Sometimes they take us away from reality. And sometimes they reflect the reality from a certain time in our lives. In this case, Dracula 1982 brings back memories of Rick telling me to make it happen whenever I would suggest an idea. Then high five of me at the end of every performance when it would all go off without a hitch. And visions of a smiling Athena in her Dracula's bride dress with a big smile just laughing her ass off at the reaction I got from the audience. Did you hear it? Did you hear it, Eric? Oh my god, it was great. Yeah, I did, babe. I did. <laughs>